Standing for the reading of Scripture, uh, we'll continue on in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 6, this morning coming to verses 45 through 52. The Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 6, let us hear and attend to the reading of God's Word. Immediately, he, that is Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and cried out. For they all saw him, and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them, and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid." Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Jesus walking on the water seems to have captured popular popular imagination, Uh, so much so that the imagery and the phrase walking on water is used ranging from films and comedy skits to expressing esteem, as well as some of you may remember back in 1990, uh, a number two chart uh, hit on the uh, uh, country ballad. Uh, So that, that phrase, that idea, walking on water, Uh, is well recognized. The popular idea seems to recognize something extraordinary, an uncommon feat or accomplishment which gains public notice or reputation. You might think of it or you may have heard of it being used, let's say, for a successful sports coach coach, uh, of a team. And it might be said of him, well, he can walk on water. It's like he can walk on water because he's so successful and has had such an astounding success. Or, Or from a business guru, people follow him like he could walk on water. So we recognize that phrase being used far and wide. The only original source for this idea is from the Gospels account of Jesus walking across the stormy sea of Galilee to the apostles in a boat. Now, these two stories about Jesus feeding the multitude with a few pieces of bread and fish and his walking on water are connected in the Gospel narratives. As one example we have here in Mark chapter 6, but in the other gospel narratives they are also connected. But Mark also links these two stories for a faith lesson. At the conclusion of this section, which we just read, verse 52, we read, For they, that is the apostles, had not understood about the loaves when Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish and fed the multitude. For the apostles had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. And this is an example of weak belief that we're talking about as we are here in the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. The gospel conflict in this sinful world is against unbelief. We saw that previously in chapter 6. Against disbelief. We saw examples of that. Against false beliefs and superstitions with with Herod, for example. And now we continue on. And with the the multitude that Jesus uh, did this miraculous feeding, and with his own apostles as well, there's a display of weak belief. But next week we'll come to the conclusion of this chapter, 
to remind us, as has been woven all the way through it and is building up in the Gospel of Mark, saving faith in the Gospel of Jesus Christ is the victory that overcomes the world. And that's a faith lesson for us, and it's a message to us even this morning as well. In uh, verses 45 through 52 here, not keeping Christ-centered testimonies and teachings results in spiritual malnutrition along with foolish, unscriptural imaginations and fears. Remember, we're just coming off this um, uh, event where Jesus provided for people's hunger. He fed them real food, but they are spiritually malnourished. And his apostles even demonstrate this, as we'll get to it in the course of this passage. And when we're spiritually malnourished, you know what malnourishment is, you know when there's a condition of you're, you're not healthy, your body's not healthy, your mind is not healthy because of malnutrition. And while we may not have suffered that necessarily ourselves, we know about it and we see it in the world. But in application of spiritual malnourishment, what is the result? Foolish, unscriptural imaginations and fears. And again, we'll see this and apply this in the passage that we have before us. Look, if you will, at verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. This immediately is one of those words we said that recurs in the Gospel of Mark, and it has to do with not only the time, immediately at this time, but also in this manner. In an immediate and deliberate way, Jesus urgently directed the disciples to embark across the Sea of Galilee while he dispersed the crowd. Now, after the miraculous feeding of the multitude in the late afternoon, concerns over the apostles and the people feeding their popular excitement into personal expectations about Jesus needed deliberate intervention. And Jesus intervenes in an unexpected way here. Uh, John chapter 6 tells us that the people started uh, getting excited and stirred up because Jesus had fed them. They wanted to make him king. A king, as in the Old Testament days, like the kings of the nations around them. And they began to speculate and began to feed their imaginations about what this king can do that can multiply food, that can do these kinds of powers. And Jesus, concerned that the apostles also get caught up in this sweep of these excited popular ideas and then turn to personal expectations my own personal Jesus who can handle all my needs and take care of me and do everything that I want him to do I just have to ask him and that sadly is a way that Jesus is portrayed today often as well just your own personal Jesus like a genie in a bottle that can give you all your wishes but the Lord Jesus recognizing this concern intervenes in an unexpected way. Now, Christ's gospel ministers need to exercise faith to combat the influence of crowds and money. And what we're dealing with here, there's this crowd. We said it could number 10, 15,000 or more. It was 5,000 men plus women and children. The disciples say, we don't have enough money. Almost a year's wage wouldn't provide them all with just one meal of fish tacos. There's never enough money, is there? We don't think there is. And we think that we always need more and more in terms of crowds. If we could just get the attention of the crowds, if we could wow them, and if we had enough money to really uh, pursue. And Jesus is saying, you got it wrong. You're looking at this the wrong way. 
There are wrong emphases that are given to the ministry in terms of what the gospel should be, what the church should be doing. And there are false messianic expectations. And even today, these continue to cause confusion about the mission and the priorities of the visible church today. What would you consider to be the mission and priorities of the visible church of Brookwood Presbyterian Church? You feel like we don't have enough money, we don't have enough people, we can't really do anything? What are we doing for the kingdom of God? Well, in my prayer this morning, I reflected on what I've been thinking and praying for a long time and and even this week, and that is the importance of the public worship of God. There is nothing more important that we do. You need to let that settle in on you. There is nothing more important that we do than to publicly worship God and to give glory to Him. Is God limited by crowds? Is God limited by money? That's the point that the disciples, the the apostles, and the larger crowd missed with with a wrong focus on what they thought the ministry should be and what they should be doing and what they could count on from Jesus. And then these false messianic expectations. I cannot tell you how widespread it is that there are false messianic expectations that people are trading, whether it be on fear or whether it be on uh, sensationalized claims. I mean, wasn't it just this past month somebody claimed the end of the world was going to come last month? It's over and over and over again. But we are not to get swept away with that because we're to be moored and founded and grounded to the anchor of our soul in the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus. And here he demonstrates to us by intervening in unexpected ways to send his apostles away from the influence of the crowds and their false expectations. You can see in verses 46 through 49, and when he had sent them away, that is when Jesus had dismissed the crowd, he departed, and this is in a public way, they saw him go, he dismissed them, he said goodbye to them, and he departed into the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, remember this is in the late afternoon, and he, get, he sent his uh, apostles in the boat out into the sea. And when, when the afternoon was over and evening had come, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them sta- straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the water and would have passed them by. And, they, and when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out. So Jesus publicly departed into the mountain to pray. And I did want to emphasize that, that when he bid farewell to the crowd, he dismissed the crowd uh, in a a deliberate way, and they saw him go up into the mountain. He was going up to pray. He left the apostles and the crowds of people at the time of such popularity. Doesn't that seem anticlimactic to you? It seems so to the apostles and to the crowd. Where's Jesus going? It seems like here's the the crest of the wave of his popularity. And humans desire approval and self-esteem. And here, at the height of this, Jesus bids them farewell. He sends his apostles away in the opposite direction. And he goes up, and the people see him going up into the mountain to pray. I want you to consider something. I'd already mentioned this morning the continuing popular use of the walking on water episode. We talked about how widespread that is. And the the only original source for it is the Gospels and the account of Jesus walking on the water. So that's widespread and that's drawn upon, isn't it? How widespread is attention given to the record of Jesus praying? We have a lot more attention given in the Scriptures of Jesus praying 
Then there's one episode of him walking on water. I've said it very often. I kind of don't get why this has captured popular imagination. There are so many other things to me that Jesus did that were so astounding. And I'm not, in, in no way am I belittling this. This is amazing what Jesus did. But I'm not swept away by it. And I really find the attention of Jesus going up into the mountain to pray to be far more consoling and reassuring to me. So Jesus leaving the multitude of people to go into the mountain to pray and is coming down again to walk across the water to his disciples is another symbolic antitype identifier of Jesus being the prophet and the deliverer, the Savior greater than Moses. We pointed this out, how Jesus said, uh, um, at least he'll say this on the following day, that your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. I give you the true bread that comes down from heaven. He identified for him. He, He talked about him being greater than Moses. We've seen many examples of where Jesus, I pointed out to you, his name was becoming well known. What is that name? But Yeshua. Joshua, he's the greater Joshua and deliverer. And the fact that he did a miracle of feeding that was far greater in magnitude than the prophet Elijah or the prophet Elisha. Now, what I should have added in your uh, notes this morning was not only that Jesus is the prophet and deliverer and the Savior greater than Moses who who's, uh, separated the waters and then went up into the mountain, but do you know that Joshua also was used of God to separate the waters? Do you know whom God also used to separate the waters? The prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha. There are accounts of all of them being used by God to separate the waters. Not just the one example of Moses in the Red Sea. And what does Jesus do here? Jesus doesn't even need to separate the waters. He just walks right across them in the midst of a storm. And so he's greater in the, in the wonder of symbolic antitype. He is the fulfiller. He is identified as greater than all the prophets. Moses went up into the mountain to pray to receive the law of God. Jesus comes down from the mountain of the Lord's holiness. He comes down and he goes up on the mount to teach and he goes up on the mount to preach and he goes up into the mount to pray. And so he is identified as greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than Elijah, greater than Elisha. Now, Jesus was on the land in the mountain praying while the disciples were fighting a storm on the sea. We don't know how long they had been out there. Remember, Jesus dismissed them in the late afternoon and they went out and launched out and barked into the sea to go over across the sea. But now we're told that in the wee hours of the morning, They are there straining against a storm in the sea. So we can estimate that they were there for hours. Let's say they departed around 6 o'clock. Maybe they departed a little earlier. We're told that they were out in the middle of the sea somewhere between 3 o'clock in the morning and 6 o'clock in the morning, somewhere in that time frame. So quite honestly, they had been out in the sea a long time. It doesn't take that long under normal conditions to go across to where they were going, a few miles but we're told they were three or four miles out in the sea in this storm. We don't know how long they had been there. In the middle of the sea, in the middle of the dark night, with a storm raging around them, they're fighting and they're rowing and they're trying to get through that storm. Well, my point is this. Jesus knows how long you've been in the storm. 
when he was not with them in the boat this time, he was not apart from them. He was not unaware. He was not intent on caring for them. And they, of course, were learning a faith lesson. So they were out in that storm for a while. And I know you may have been in a storm for a while. It seems like darkness and gloom and clouds and uh, the swamping cares of life are about to drown you. Jesus knows where you are. Jesus was on the land in the mountain praying while the disciples were fighting a storm on the sea, but Jesus saw them, we're told. Now, I want you to think about this. this, Jesus was intent. Jesus was profoundly aware. Jesus perceived what was going on with them. He knew of their circumstances in the middle of the night, in the middle of the raging sea. Now, some think that there was, because there was a near full moon, we're told that this was close to Passover. I mentioned that to you. That may have been why there were so many crowds of people together, um, groups, and maybe they were traveling, getting ready to go to Passover or to celebrate Passover. But John tells us that it was near to Passover time. So some think because there was a near full moon around Passover, And from the vantage that Jesus went up into the mountain of the high ground, Jesus could visibly see the disciples in the boat on the sea. However, we're told that the boat was three or four miles out in the sea, that it was between three and six o'clock in the morning in the wee hours, plus stormy conditions, I believe, suggest low visibility. I don't think Jesus was seeing them like you and I look and see. I think they were too far away. I think they were in the middle of the sea. It was at night. It was somewhere between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning, even if there was a full moon. And I think if there were not serious storm clouds, can you imagine that far away, a, a boat or a ship, you know, being tossed by the waves and just the roughness of the sea? And so what I get from this is even if Jesus with his natural eyesight could see a boat out on the sea, we're, this suggests to us that Jesus is seeing more. Jesus perceives the struggle He saw them straining. Jesus perceived the the fear and the concern and the exhaustion. I mean, can can you imagine something analogous? Uh, Let's say you work in your yard for six hours. You know, moving heavy, uh, you know, brush or something, or you're working a, a tiller, or you're working a, a chainsaw. I mean, the idea is that they're really straining. They're, this is physically exhausting what they're going through. And I just want you to get that picture. And Jesus sees that. So I don't think this Jesus seeing them is about he could spot that the, you know, the ship was or the boat was bobbing up and down in the water. No, Jesus is seeing the struggle. He's seeing the fear. He's seeing the concern. He's seeing the exhaustion. He knows what they're going through. And so, the reassuring witness of Christ-centered Scripture testimonies is that nothing throughout creation, in the physical creation or in the supernatural creation, can hide or separate Christ from being attentive to those He loves and for whom He prays. Uh, I I do want to reference another Scripture here this morning. I I want you to hear this. Uh, If you want to turn there in Hebrews chapter 10... But I want you to listen to me. I want you to listen to the overlapping kind of imagery that's here in um, this passage in Hebrews uh, 10, verses 19 and following. 
And I'm not saying that this passage in Hebrews 10 is based on this story. I just want you to see how Scripture connects, okay? Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And I will make the, the, the statement here and the connection here. The, the storms of the world do not separate us from Christ. We have been sprinkled and washed. And the, the, the imagery of baptism is a greater symbol of Christ's presence with us and our union with Him than the world can, can overcome or separate us. It can never separate us from union with Christ. Verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. Let's don't be weak as water. Let's don't sink in the water. Let's don't waver and tremble and shimmer uh, unstable like water is. Without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And so there again, an application to the value and the benefit of our public worship and our being encouraged and reassured. And this is what we see in this passage, that, that uh, the Lord Jesus, walking across the stormy sea, intentionally came alongside the distressed the disciples in the boat. Now, some of our translations are a little... Uh, confusing on this when it says that that uh, for example in um, the translation that I use here uh, that Jesus uh, would have passed them by let's see Uh, at the end of verse 48 he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by Uh, actually if we just reversed uh, uh, the two words there and he would have uh, passed by them the idea is not that Jesus was going to just walk across and, and leave them out there. I mean, it kind of gives us the wrong idea. The, the, the intent of the passage is that Jesus desired to pass by them. Jesus desired to pass alongside them. Jesus intentionally directed his course to come alongside the distressed vessel and the disciples in, in the boat. So just don't be confused by that. Sometimes the translation there kind of gives us a little confusion that Jesus was just going to go on his way and let them figure it out. Not at all. Jesus was walking on the water intently directing his course to come alongside the boat where they were. But the disciples, not keeping Christ-centered testimonies and teachings, were overcome with terror from unscriptural imagination and fears. They thought, and the translation here is a phantom, they thought what they saw on the ocean was a specter, a ghost, a phantom. It's the only place that this word is used in the New Testament In other words, an unfriendly spirit being. They didn't anticipate, they didn't expect, oh, that's Jesus coming to us. Why? Because they had unscriptural imaginations and fears. They were not keeping Christ-centered thoughts. What, What is so surprising to me is how many times has Jesus rescued them? And I don't mean just out of a boat or in a storm, but... Often, what they have seen of Jesus' power and presence. Now, I said this morning that spiritual malnourishment is unhealthy. And and spiritual malnourishment is a condition of feeding our imaginations and fears and not feeding on Christ. This is the big point that Jesus makes 
On this following day, in John chapter 6, when he teaches them about why he gave them the food and what that's supposed to represent in terms of a greater reality of the need for spiritual food, of feeding your faith, of feeding on Christ by faith, of trusting His Word. We take so much care to nourish our body. We don't like missing a meal. But what do we do about nourishing our soul? You see? That's the point that Jesus is making. And I think that also reflects on what, what was dull in the apostles, which we'll get to at the close in verse 52. But spiritual malnourishment is a condition of feeding our imaginations and fears rather than feeding on Christ by faith. How, how do you feed your imagination and fears? Do you dwell on things that, that are a challenge and that are threatening and that are uncertain? It's hard not to, isn't it? It's hard not to let those things overcome us. And yet, we're to keep Christ-centered in our testimonies and in the witness of Scripture. Here's a way that we can um, resist temptation. Submit to the Word of God. I gave you some scriptures this morning in the Psalms and in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to come to another one in, John, in James chapter 1 and also in 1 John. Throughout this message, there are other scriptures that can feed your soul in faith so that you're not spiritually malnourished. In verses 50 through 52, we go on to read, For they saw him and were troubled, but immediately... There again, in manner and in time, urgently, he walked. Uh, he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. So he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. So Jesus identified himself here to them as I am. That's how the text reads. It is ego e me. And um, some say this is just a gloss, a way of identifying, saying, oh, it's me. But I don't believe so. I believe it's intentional that Jesus uses this attribute and name of God, the uncreated, self-existing, self-revealing, promise-keeping God, and in Christ-centered Scripture testimonies and teachings, this is faith food. To nourish our souls as Christian believers. Jesus is, I am. Jesus claimed to be. Jesus demonstrates that he is. Jesus promises to you and to me that he is the uncreated, self-existing, self-revealing, promise-keeping God. That's a Christ-centered testimony. Jesus is, I am. Ego me. Now, you know who was in this boat? We know that the 12 apostles were. There may have been some other disciples. There may have been some sailors. We don't really know. But we know the apostles were. And you know who was in this boat? John the apostle was in this boat. You know what John the apostle would later write? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. So you see, here's a faith lesson for John to feed upon Christ and Christ-centered testimonies 
That Christ will not leave him or forsake him. That it wasn't a ghost upon the sea. It was Jesus the I Am who was coming to him as well as the others. And to cast out their fears. Be of good cheer. Stop fearing. John was in that boat. And John says to us, we love him because he first loved us. That will feed your faith when you doubt. Now, Jesus did not berate, shame, or scorn the disciples here. He continually urged his disciples to a stronger faith by commanding exhortations and displays of divine providence and power. Jesus says in that imperative uh, strength of command, but with urgency of care and love, be of good cheer. Be of good courage. Stop being fearful. And so Jesus urges us with these commanding exhortations from Scripture. He has authority. He tells us. And He displays His divine providence and powers. One of the things I thought about, I don't know if you remember, but uh, as we've been preaching through the uh, Gospel of Mark, repeatedly the boat keeps coming up. You know, Jesus needed a boat. They, they, they put Jesus in a boat and pushed him out a little bit so he could preach to the crowd. Jesus told the uh, disciples to get in the boat, to go over here, to go over there, to get back in the boat. They previously were in the boat when a storm raised up on the sea and Jesus was asleep. They said, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus rebuked the wind and the sea. And they marveled. They were amazed. They were beside themselves. We don't even have the words to express it. How overwhelmed they were at the power of Jesus. But then what do we read again? Jesus says, get in the boat. Let's go get in the boat. You guys need a break. You came back from preaching and teaching and from displaying the power of Christ and his gospel over unclean spirits and uh, expressing and demanding the authority to God's uh, uh, commission, even shaking the dust off your feet and so forth. And they came back and Jesus said, you know, you need a break. You need a little time to recoup here. Let's get in the boat over and over again. This boat keeps coming up and they get in the boat. I, I, I don't want to, I'm not being critical here about the disciples. I'm just puzzled. They were in the boat. Jesus was asleep and Jesus got up and calmed the, the sea and the, and the wind. This time they're in the boat and they're in a storm and Jesus is not with them. And so when he comes walking on the water, their fears have been fed by their superstitions they don't assume or in faith concentrate on it being Jesus. I don't, I don't know why they wouldn't have been praying out to Jesus as they were in the boat. Maybe they were, we're not told. But they're in the same situation again. And their faith is weak. How many times have you been in the boat? How many times have you been in the boat in trouble? How many times have you been in the boat for Jesus to take you out of trouble? And so, here again, and we're going to see it in the coming chapters. They're going to be getting in the boat again. So I already mentioned to you, we don't know how long they were out on the rough sea at night, had been straining and were exhausted and worn out. But we will see further on in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is going to tell them to get in the boat again. It's time to get back in the boat. You know how my flesh reacts to that? I don't want to get back in the boat I don't want to get back in the boat. Can you think of, of times when there's been, you attribute that God protected you in a certain way. 
I'm, I'm just going to use the example of, of um, avoiding a car accident. I mean, maybe many of us have a similar kind of experience when it was like, man, an inch further, and it would have been, you know, a different story. So let's say you were pulling out of the church parking lot here, and as you began to pull out, somebody else pulled out, or there was some confusion, and that cars came careening toward each other and missed by inches, spun around, and after it was all over in the flash of a blink of an eye, nobody's hurt, there's no dents in the car, there's no scratches, and so everybody came out unscathed. How many times would you turn into the church parking lot and not remember that? That's just a providential way of God's protection. It's happened to me before. I remember vividly times when, uh, you know, by just inches or by seconds <laughs> or, or fractions of seconds, there would have been a different story. And I attribute that to God's providence and God's care. I, I believe I live that way. Now, for the sake of illustration... I just want to give you another example. What if you pulled out of the church parking lot and a car came careening toward you and T-boned you and flipped over like in slow motion in all the action movies and then the car lands on its wheels, your car is completely undamaged, no one has any kind of injury, it's like the two cars just passed through each other and nothing happened. Now, that would be a miracle. But my point to you is this. Would you ever forget that? Over and over, Jesus is telling his disciples, we've got to get back in the boat. But I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. Over and over, Jesus is saying, you're in the boat of life. You're in the boat of faith. You're in the ark of safety. You're in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are the body of Christ. I will never leave you or forsake you. And so sometimes Jesus tells us we have to get back in the boat. We have to continue on. And we need to grow faith and to trust Him. So Mark links these two stories for a faith lesson, I said. Look at verse 52. For they had not understood about the loaves, Jesus feeding the multitude, because their heart was hardened. Now, let me... Uh, explain this a little bit. When we read there, they had not understood. The idea is they had not comprehended. They had not perceived. In other words, they had not dwelt on it. Uh, very literally, you could translate this, they didn't connect the dots. The idea is that of making the connection. They did not make the connection about the loaves, Jesus feeding the multitude, because their heart was hardened. Now, the word hardened here is not in rebellion. It's not a hardness of resistance. It's not a callousness of unbelief. The hardness here is dull. They were unresponsive. They were dull. And so they had not considered and connected the dots with what Jesus did in feeding the multitude because they were dull in their thoughts. They didn't dwell on it. They didn't keep Christ-centered testimonies and recognize. The next day, Jesus is going to explain more of what that meant. They didn't ask him about it. They served as, as Jesus divided the, the food. They took the lunch baskets and they served all the people so that everybody had plenty. 
as much as they wanted. We talked about whether the early fisherman wanted five tacos and the little kid wanted one fish taco. It was that kind of uh, display. They had as much as they wanted. And then there were 12 basket, lunch baskets full of leftovers. And those 12 lunch baskets full, I believe, were what were given to the apostles after they had served the multitude, after they had done Christ's work and under him had served the multitude, then Jesus provided for them and they were dull. They had been satisfied, they had their meal and they began to listen to the people speculating about let's make him our king, nobody can do anything, this is the greatest thing we've ever seen and that's when Jesus says, nope, you've got to get out of here. Because you're not thinking and, and considering and connecting what is really most important. And I, I just think that that application stands for us. You see, the, in this story, the disciples show an example of not keeping Christ-centered Scripture testimonies and teachings even when they ate the food that Jesus, by miracle, made. They had previously witnessed His powers over uh, the natural and the supernatural creation. As Mark's Gospel gives us straight talk over and over from the very beginning. Remember? When Jesus called them and began to train them and began to demonstrate to them. The, they were in the presence of Jesus when the, the demon possessed fell at His feet and said, You are the Christ, the Son of God. They saw Jesus restore and say to a man, Your sins are forgiven you. Take up your bed and walk. Jesus was sleeping when a storm raged on the sea. And they said, don't you care that we're going to perish? And Jesus said, quiet down. And they were marveled and said, who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Over and over and over again, Jesus commissioned them and sent them out and said, I'll give you power over unclean spirits. You preach the gospel. You bring the good news. Whoever receives you receives me. And those who don't, shake the dust off your feet against them. They came back rejoicing, astounded of what was going on. And then Jesus feeds the multitude. Every time one of the apostles put his hand in the basket, he pulled out a fish taco. Until everyone had ate their fill. And then there was enough for them to have some. But they were dull in understanding what this meant. They didn't connect the dots. So Jesus urges the faith imperatives of courage. When Jesus says, be of good cheer, rejoice, the, the root idea of this is, is courage. Be, um, be warmed up. And don't fear. Do not fear. And he tells us this is by sanctifying moral memory. This is one way the Holy Spirit strengthens Christian believers to resist temptation and sin. I told you there's another passage I wanted to reference this morning. It's one that, that I puzzle over often. Uh, this, this passage in, uh, in Mark and this, this episode of Jesus um, addressing the fearful apostles as, as they were in the boat thinking they were going to die, exhausted from trying to save themselves, and Jesus says, I am. Be courageous. Cheer up. And stop fearing. Well, that in, helped me with James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 2 and following. James writes, and I want you to pick up on the imagery here as well. Because guess who else was in the boat? James was in the boat when this happened. And later James writes, my brethren... 
Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Cheer up. Be of good cheer, of good courage when you fall into various trials. That's, see, that's like saying to me, get back in the boat. How am I supposed to be happy? How am I supposed to rejoice? How am I supposed to be cheerful and courageous in trials and temptations and struggles and the things that hurt and make me afraid? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect, complete work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind." For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now I can't tell you that James had this incident in his mind when he wrote this. But I can tell you this. James learned the faith lesson of what Jesus said. Cheer up and stop being afraid because I am. I am God. And this is what James says to us. Don't be tossed around like the the, the uh, waves and the, uh, the wind out on the stormy sea. Don't be tossed around like that. Don't be unstable. But feed your faith on Jesus and His promises. And so again, um, what Jesus is saying here is to warm it. The, the, the root idea of this being cheerful, of this being courageous, it comes from the root idea of something Warming up inside. And that's where it starts. And it starts within our heart. It starts within our soul trusting and believing and stirring up, remembering the promises of God and the truth of who Jesus is. So Jesus urges the faith imperatives of courage, be of good cheer, cheer up, rejoice, count it all joy. When you face these trials and, and struggles and temptations. And don't be fearing. Stop being afraid. By the sanctifying of your moral memory. Remembering who Jesus is and what he has done. And this is one way that the Holy Spirit strengthens our Christian faith against temptation and sin. Do you need that strengthening? I need it. And this lesson from uh, Jesus and his walking to the disciples on the water. His saving them in the boat out on the sea has a far greater meaning for us in terms of faith. That Jesus is interceding and praying for us. We're never out of Jesus' sight. We're never separated from His love. And where He ever directs us to serve Him, He is there with us. And He tells us to take courage. That builds our faith. The courage of faith that you can be cheerful in the face of hardships and struggles and uncertainties. Don't give in to fear, but feed in faith on Jesus. Well, we said the conclusion of chapter 6 should also be a great encouragement to us concerning the power of the gospel. And I don't want us to leave chapter 6 without seeing the conclusion uh, that we'll get to next week at the conclusion of Mark chapter 6. Our concluding...